Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. The series allows us to explore various, data to various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. And while we're at it, we'll be enjoying our morning brew. My name is Denny Lee. I'm a developer advocate at Databricks and one of the co-hosts of Data Brew. Hello, everyone. My name is Brooke Wenig. I'm the other co-host of Databrew and machine learning practice lead at Databricks. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Diana File, who is a staff data scientist at PayPal and also co-organizer of the Women in Machine Learning and Data Science chapter in Boulder, Colorado. Diana, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So Diana, uh, can we start off with a little bit about how you got into the field of machine learning? Sure. I feel like my path was pretty traditional in that I um, studied math and computer science in college. And my first job, I was planning to get a PhD, but I wanted to see if I would enjoy doing software work first, because that's what all my peers were doing, even though that's not what I was interested in um, in college. But I ended up luckily at Amazon in the um, personalization group. And at that time, we were doing a lot of collaborative filtering and really machine learning. And this was in 2005, so before machine learning was very popular, or really I hadn't even heard about it that much before, even though I was obsessed with math. Um, and I just loved it. We had so much data. Um, it was so fun to come up with those algorithms. And I knew that I would be doing machine learning forever for my career. That's awesome that you found your passion so early on. I also know that you're very passionate about the field of data ethics. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into that field? I am. Um, data ethics, I think I didn't really start thinking about until a little bit later. So I did end up going to graduate school and probably there and afterwards, I was thinking a lot more about what is the impact of my work? What kind of problems am I really interested in? And I think on a personal level, it was also related a little to my background. I was born in Slovakia, which was a communist country, and my family um, escaped, and we were refugees for a while. We lived in Austria and then Canada eventually. And so I always am really compelled by this question of how come some people, just by circumstance, like where they're born or... Um, something about them that they have no control over? Why does that result in completely different experiences in life or really different outcomes? So I think that's always been compelling. So as more people have talked about um, fairness and data ethics, I was always have stayed on top of it. And now um, with Honey and the acquisition with PayPal, I also worked in financial services. And that's where there's regulation, where you do have to look at fair lending and consider fairness when doing machine learning. And so that's been really fun because it's actually regulated that we have to make sure that our algorithms are fair. And so that's been really cool too be at the forefront of that um, professionally. Could you talk a little bit more about fair lending? What are some things that you're allowed to include or exclude, like a zip code, a feature that you're allowed to include? Uh, what are some things that regulation prevents you from providing as input to these models? So you absolutely cannot provide as input to models anything that's a protected attribute. So um, someone's um, gender, you can't input, of course, race, anything like that. I think where there it's tricky is there's a lot of the input, pretty much most inputs about someone are correlated to some of these protected attributes. Like if I shop at Sephora and an algorithm knows that, 
uh, they might be more likely to know I'm a woman. Or maybe the, the type of um, browser I use could be correlated with something, some protected attributes about me. So that's where the, you have to do some analysis, some further analysis to ensure that the, um, the attributes you're using are not only there to in a way that proxies for those protected attributes, but are there like to actually help the decision in some way, in some justifiable way. Well, so this is really interesting. So then since a lot of these attributes can be, um, can almost identify the various things that you don't want to uh, basically identify, what are the attributes that you could then use to basically, uh, to ensure that this is done fairly? Well, I think this is what's tricky because, as we all know, credit scores are historically what is used to uh, determine credit in the United States. And things like income are a factor in credit. And we all know that income encodes a lot of what is happening in society. So there's a lot of racial and um, differences in income across racial groups or across genders or across lots of different protected groups. So, but income is known, I mean, if you have higher income, then you are a safer credit risk. So there's just always, you have to um, be able to show that you can use income because there's a business justification. I mean, that actually correlates. And then as much as possible, you um, you want to be using things that are actually telling you something of importance for the domain. And can I mention something else that's interesting? Oh, absolutely. Continue on. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're not going to stop you. <laughs> Have you all heard of adversarial debiasing? Oh, no, no, please, for the, for the audience, absolutely explain it. No, you better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so as we all know, with machine learning models, you usually have some objective that you're optimizing towards, right? And it's some metric that's usually representative of accuracy in some sense. But what if you want to represent something like fairness and accuracy? You have now two objectives. So now you're in this space where you have to trade off between them. But there's this really cool approach called adversarial debiasing where what you're doing is it's kind of like a GAN where you have an adversary and your your adversary model is trying to say oh this mo this model this prediction or this data input is male or female and my algorithm is trying to predict or confuse that adversary so um, what you end up doing is you're able to maximize your metric, like accuracy or whatever you care about, but you're also able to maximize the confusion of that adversary. So you're able to kind of hide any protected attributes and almost make, like look for all the space of all of your best decisions, but the ones that are most fair in the sense that um, they don't represent the protected group. Uh, and I guess I, what I want to say is, there's methods like that that aren't standard, but I think over time, as the industry cares more and looks more around creating fair algorithms or unbiased algorithms, where techniques like that will just be used and it'll be a better outcome for everyone. We won't really be necessarily compromising for accuracy, but we'll be choosing a more fair solution. That was actually going to be my follow-up question because I know GANs are super popular, but not many people are actually using them to solve business problems. They're super fun in artwork and generating new images. Uh, but in terms of adversarial debiasing, how long do you think it's going to take for the field to adopt this as a standard best practice for data scientists? 
I do know that in the lending space, there are businesses that are already looking at it, at using this. So, and financial services and other regulated industries where there's regulation saying your algorithm must be fair, those are going to be the first adopters, but it'll be, and so I think it's already starting to happen as to when it's going to be a standard. Well, first, I think we need like standards around governance or um, responsible AI in companies. And maybe that'll be the next step after that. So it's like after after it's become standard to have a responsible AI framework that everyone follows. Got it. Kind of like the GDPR for AI rather than just for the data itself. Yeah. And that, by the way, is starting to happen. Like Europe is probably going to do more regulation of algorithms and outcomes soon. And California, I'm sure, will follow. And so I think this their space is really shifting and it'll become more of a part of the mainstream to think about these issues as you as a data scientist design your ML models. I'm just curious. Uh, this is pro this is going a little off script, but you've reminded me of something, which is um, like, what is your? Do you feel the approach things like, for example, differential privacy? Like, do they still have come into play, or do you do you think these uh, these adversarial devising approaches are actually better? I mean, it, 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 it's not trying to choose one or the other. So I apologize for the way I asked that question, but I'm just curious from from your context because um, the confusion that you reminded me of adversarial devising is pretty much the, that's the context of differential privacy, which is maybe as you ask more questions, you add more noise to confuse the 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 the, the person querying the data. So I'm just curious for your context here. I feel like it's definitely an and question. I think privacy is a concern when it comes to data ethics, too. It's actually the concern that has been most adopted by regulators and people, which is, hey, why are these people using my data that I should have control over to make decisions about me? What's up with that? Um, I think that is standard and part of data, not standard, but it's part of data ethics and things like you know, there's there's approaches that you can use to protect people when it comes to privacy. And really these questions around fairness are just another dimension that it's important to think about. I really don't think it's either or. No, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, so then this naturally segues to my next question. I mean, like you've already discussing a little bit about how, you know, data scientists and businesses, because you're doing it yourself, are combating bias. But I'm just curious, why do you think there's such a focus on the tech industry and AI when you know bias really does exist in all these other fields too? So it's not just us, quote unquote. Well, I I guess my question is back at you. You you think that other industries are completely off the hook? Or what are the examples that you have in mind of other industries that there's no focus on things like bias or fairness? Well, so for example, if you look at almost any business that whether it depends on data or an AI, right? There, it, it, It's sort of exactly to the same point, right? I mean, there's going to be biases in terms of who's purchasing what, right? Yes, there's going to be eventually data that goes into it, but often we focus just on the data aspect as opposed to just even like, like hey, retailers, how are you hiring people? How are you uh, promoting people, right? Um, for that matter, not just retailers, even just businesses in general, right? The, the fact that it's very clear that there are such things as glass ceilings. It's very clear that there are such things as ceilings for uh, people of, uh, of color, right? So I'm just curious from that standpoint, like why specifically the data and AI space, or is it just because we're in everything anyways? I see your point. I actually think that that kind of scrutiny and those questions on other industries or on other decisions 
are part of the reason people are caring about this around AI. Like no one was asking 15 years ago when I was working on machine learning about the impact of our models, but people were talking about the glass ceiling. So I think it is a little bit related. I think there's also scrutiny now on brands with if they're inclusive in their advertising. I think like these questions around bias are being asked across industries um, just as much as for machine learning and AI. I guess I will add, though, that maybe one reason why it's definitely critical to think about this stuff for machine learning and AI is that um, these kinds of algorithms has, have so much scale. Like, they can impact everyone in, in the world or, every like, huge groups of people, whereas other decisions, if it's just, you know, hiring practices at one company, it's the, the scale and the impact just aren't as uh, huge. That definitely makes sense that with data and AI, you can automate a lot of these decisions. And so the scale is definitely a factor versus an individual decision made by one hiring manager at one company uh, doesn't have that type of impact. Um, I do feel for a lot of people in other industries outside of tech, though, um, because in terms of fairness, it's not just about whether or not I get approved for a loan, but it's things like the pay gap that's present or things like healthcare. Black women in the U.S. when they give birth are three times more likely to die of pregnancy, even for the same socioeconomic group as white women. And so there are systemic problems in other fields. What advice do you have coming from the tech field and having these different tools that you use to combat bias that you would recommend for other industries to leverage? Oh, wow. I That's a really tough question. I think awareness and is is really huge. Um, what I think, okay, so let me step back a little bit. I think at least when it comes to machine learning, part of the evolution is I think the following, where when we started with machine learning, the idea was that we could actually bring fairness into the world instead of, to your point, Brooke, like a single person um, sitting in an office, smoking a cigar, making a credit decision about me, like with all of their inbuilt biases, we now can do this um, in a more fair way where we take attributes that everyone hopefully can see and understand about themselves that they can, they can maybe improve on. And it's not just one single person with their biases making a decision. So it should, like in theory, protect the, the world a little bit from that situation. Um, and so, but of course you can, what could happen is that you actually amplify societal biases at a larger scale and that's the risk. And so asking those questions, which is, how are we, how is this algorithm or approach like amplifying um, the systemic uh, biases that already exist in society is something, is a question that we should ask when we're designing algorithms, but really everyone can ask when they're creating a product or an experience, whether that's an experience of giving birth at a hospital or which, or something else. You bring up a really interesting point about people should know what attributes are being used. Do you think these regulatory um, bodies are ever going to release the models that they use of like, oh, it's 0.2 times your credit score plus 0.3 times that? Do you think they're ever going to release the models so people can better understand themselves why they didn't make the cut? I think they absolutely will, because that's part of transparency, which is one of the base, like pretty basic tenet of AI ethics besides fairness. Like people should know what why the decision is happening. So explainability and transparency is part of that. In credit, that happens. If you get denied for a credit decision, you have to be told why. It, it might not be because it's like 2.5 year income 
plus whatever but if it, it has it should be like the top three factors that went into a negative decision so you have to be able to explain your decisions at least for credit and i think that's coming for other impactful decisions that aren't necessarily like in are in less regulated industries or at least there'll be a lot of pressure on companies if they're if i'm getting a decision play, um, made about me i should i should be able to find out why just like I sh I'm able to now um, email a company and ask what data they have about me if I'm European. So while this is, uh, by the way, I'm in complete agreement with you, but I'm going to, I'm going to just pivot a little bit and just say, but how about, but if you go ahead and release the models, right? A lot of companies were going to say this, especially now you can game the system. Like you can beat the system. So when releasing the model actually caused more problems because of the fact that now you're encouraging folks to basically game or beat the system? There should be a positive feedback loop in models. Like that is actually another tenet of um, <laughs> like a good um, system, which is if there's a decision made about me, um, there it shouldn't be static. Like it, it should be able to course correct. If the decision was wrong about me next time, um, the, I should know that that company is doing, <clears throat> excuse me, that company is doing a good job in order to decrease, say their false positive rates or whatever. I, by the way, I'm talking in like, um, this is what I feel like should happen, <laughs> but I think we're far away from it. Although we're making steps as a society, but, but this notion of being able, not having negative feedback loops is something that you want in a machine learning system, I guess, to your question. Um, are we giving away all our trade secrets? Is that really the, the question? I think there's two types of decisions. There's, there's algorithms that impact like my fundamental, um, like my life in a fundamental way, kind of like my basic needs. So like my access to housing, credit, jobs, things like that. And then there's decisions that are a little bit more in the gray area. Um, and I think those will take longer to really um, become become transparent or have explainability about them. Like, why did I get this? Um, why did I get served this ad? I'm not sure uh, how long it'll take for me to find out. But I do think that this comes back to privacy. I would love to be able to control like the decisions that are made about me by AI systems. Oh, absolutely. It goes into this idea that right now, because everything is given away for free, we are the data. We are the we are the product per se. So, and exactly to your point about data ethics and privacy in general, like we we'd like to not be the product right now. So, so uh, I, I'd love to go ahead and dive a little bit in terms of like, well, then you you sort of explained those tenants. Are there other tenants that you think that really in terms of data ethics that you would like to bring up, like that we haven't really covered yet? So I just want to say I'm taking these a little bit from Kathy O'Neill's book, which is Weapon, Weapons of Math Destruction, which you might have read, which is probably one of the earliest really books that asked this question of what is the impact of our algorithms. And in there, she had four really principles, and we've covered them. One is scale. So how many people do you impact? Two is fairness. So we talked about that Um then there's transparency and the feedback loop. So yeah, those are the four and we've now covered all of them. <laughs> I think maybe there's ones I'm forgetting. So a second ago, you were talking about explainability. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on using tools like Shap and Lime that give you these local, um, locally accurate explainability models 
but they're not globally accurate. So you can't just have a single SHAP model to be able to represent your entire data. Like, no, that's your underlying neural network, your underlying tree-based model. I'm just curious from the regulatory perspective, are you okay with having something that's locally accurate, but it's not globally, uh, it's not able to explain globally what is happening with your data? <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think of SHAP as very powerful because you do have some information globally. Like you can look at all of your trading data and look at your SHAP graph and kind of see like um, look, stepping out what's happening across your entire data set. Um, I, I'm not sure. I feel like it's not an either. SHAP is so powerful. Before SHAP, you just couldn't, you, you could make up things related to feature importance, but they um, were problematic and weren't locally accurate. So I do think it's more powerful to have locally accurate information or something like SHAP. And, um, but maybe there'll be more solutions around explainability. I think explainability is, is pretty young and there's gonna be more libraries and more solutions that will help us just get into what our algorithms are doing. And that's, that's a good thing. Do you think we're ever going to get to the point where if I ask why was I denied for this loan, they're just going to send me back the shop values? Do you think we're ever going to get to that very nice visualization? Or do you think that we have to provide some more education and explaining to people like what exactly an algorithm is like, hey, this is a linear regression model or hey, this is an ensemble of trees that we used. What do you think needs to be provided back to the end users so they better understand how the algorithm made its decision? I don't know, sending the general population the shop values feels a little bit like a can of worms, but I personally would like, how cool would that be? <laughs> like send me the shop values for every single decision. Um, I, I really think that just being able to understand the top five contributors to a decision is already very powerful. Um, and I don't like knowing the exact shop values doesn't feel that necessary. And like you said, it's like, it's locally accurate. I don't know. Um, and it depends on the rest of the training set too. So I think like going into those weeds might not be helpful for the general population. Well, that's completely true. You have to admit getting a bunch of shop graphs actually looks pretty nice. <laughs> Yeah, they're very good at visualization, those folks. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, let, let's switch gears a little bit again uh, to, uh, as we're coming to the, the, the ninth inning here. Uh, what are some of the most pressing issues, you know, from your perspective caused by that lack of data ethics? I think there's two areas. One is um, what I talked about a little bit before, which is we're making decisions around people's fundamental needs. And if those are unfair, or those encode society's biases, then we're just going to become, end up in a more unequal world, which isn't good for anyone. It, it creates a lot of conflict, it, help, it, it limits people's opportunity, um, it increases like economic disparity and all of that. So that's, that's not great. I mean, that's terrible. The other area, which um, is that there's so many ways that we have machine learning systems making decisions and we just have no idea what the impacts and harm is. Like one that I have no idea about is the fact that Google search uses BERT, which we know has a lot of gender biases and a lot of like racial biases and really all of society's and Reddit's biases around people are all in BERT. And now every time I do a search result, 
like that is somehow potentially encoded in the results and that like make I don't like that but I also am not sure exactly what the, the harm there is so I feel like there's just a whole host of um, little things that we we're not even sure what the impact there is and that's something I worry about. So I know you mentioned Kathy O'Neill's book. Uh, I'm just curious, what are some other folks in the field of data ethics that you follow? <clears throat> okay, um, well, I've been off Twitter since the pandemic because um, I'm just trying to like stay sane. Um, but I think Twitter was a place that I really appreciated following people and staying on top of things. Um, one person who I follow is... Ruman Chowdhury. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She just got hired as a director of um, AI ethics for Twitter. Um, and previously she ran parity.ai, which is an algorithmic audit company. Um, she just really stays on top of what's going on in the space and I enjoy following her. And then um, there's Algorithmic Justice League and Joe Buolini. I'm so bad with names, um, and I really follow what she's doing um, in that space too. Awesome. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Denny and I will have to definitely check those out. Some folks that I personally follow, uh, Timnit Gebru, I know she was pretty popular this past year, but she did present at our uh, Spark and AI Summit two years ago um, on the field of data ethics. I also really enjoy Rachel Thomas. She had an excellent uh, data ethics course that she taught through USF. Denny, who are some of the folks that you like to follow? Honestly, I'm still learning right now. So the fact the fact that I'm talking to you, Diana, and the fact that I'm listening to this po uh, this vidcast podcast is pretty much where the beginning is for me. I've been pretty much stuck in the privacy state, and so that's not really where. And I'm only now learning just how brutal the ethics is. So hence the whole reason why it was super interesting to talk to you, Diana. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and close us out for the day because I know Diana has to get to a very important 9 a.m. And so I just wanna say thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your viewpoints on data ethics, educating us on the various tenants, and thank you again for taking time out of your day to join us. Thanks, it was great being here.